The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic You in collaboration with North Coast HIV and related programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health. And I'm Mandy Nolan. And you're listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. This is The Daily Dose, where we hear from people who inject drugs. The aim of this podcast is to disempower stereotypes that stigmatise people by hearing real stories. Today we meet Digby. He's a journalist. He's educated, well-travelled and someone who's been very successful in his career. Digby's in his late 60s, possibly early 70s. It's hard to tell because he could easily pass for early 60s. He's a really fit and healthy man. He doesn't use drugs anymore. He was an injecting drug user over 45 years ago. Digby talks about what it is to be open about drug use and how even though it's historical, it still impacts on his life today. Uh, I, I sort of came out, I revealed that in a, in a blog I did in a local newspaper um, uh, when I had liver cancer, in fact, as a result of, of all of, the, of using. Um, and uh, at that stage, I thought that there was a good chance that I was going to die. So I, uh, I thought, I'm just going to tell my story. And I revealed then that I'd been an intravenous drug user in the, in the 70s and that, that it had led to this illness now. Um, and so that really kind of just neutralised any stigma for me at that point because the community knew the people that I worked with at that newspaper were, were, were quite astonished that this had been in the past, but uh, they, they accepted it, you know, because they knew me now and, um, and knew that I wasn't, you know, a, a junkie um, or, a, you know, uh, that I was a kind of a reliable kind of guy. And um, uh, so, so I sort of killed stigma personally uh, that way and... Uh, yeah. Had it been something in the past, Digby, that you were mindful just to keep to yourself because of that? Can you- I very much did keep it to myself. Yeah, uh, for all sorts of reasons. Um, uh, it was, it was, it was, it was stigma. It was, it was sort of shame about it. I suppose it was, it was the fear of being judged as a as a junkie. You know, the the terms are not great. You know, uh, when when somebody. Uh, I discovered that I was using in the 70s, uh, she said to me, oh, is it true you're a dirty junkie, you know? Um, so so there was that thing there. Um, uh, um, I can't quite remember what the, oh, <laughs> what the question no, was. Um, just talking about how, how you sort of guarded your, oh, yeah. your point until um, then. Well, and in a, at, an, at a kind of official level, you know, I mean, um, you don't want it to, in, in case you want life insurance and, and this kind of thing or a job or you want your doctor to treat you in a certain way. Um, yeah, I think there's pressure to, to conceal it at that was, point. Was it uh, evident um, with... 
uh, within family and friends and things? Or was it something that happened and then you moved on and really just didn't talk about at all? Um, I, I, th- I think uh, it, 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 was, it was sort of accepted. Uh, the, the, the fact is when I stopped doing it and when I stopped um, drinking actively because alcoholism was a big part of the story too, that the, the family, my mother particularly, were just so relieved that they, uh, they just accepted that the past was the past and, and, it, and it sort of, you know, kind of fell away out of memory. That's the thing, isn't it, though, that, you know, because you, you had, you know, hepatitis non-A, non-B, which turned out to be hepatitis C. Yes. Um, the past does have a way of, of coming back. Can you tell me about when it came back for you and you've got liver cancer, um, how, how you negotiated that, you know, and how you move forward to find a treatment um, sure. That yeah. Um, well, for years, uh, many of my peers from that time were were being diagnosed, and yes, uh, he he's got Hep C. He's got Hep C. Every single one of them, really. This was from Wellington in New Zealand in the seventies. All, all of them had it. I thought through some sort of the gift of denial that um, I'd been the one that got away. Um, but when people started dying, I thought. I, I really should get myself checked up. And this was in the early uh, 2000s. So I went and had the test and sure enough, there it was. Um, and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't surprised. I was a bit disappointed, I suppose, but I wasn't surprised. The, 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 the fact is I was, completely, um, uh, I was completely asymptomatic other than being irritable and a bit itchy sometimes. I didn't have any you know, symptoms in, in my, in, around the liver or anything. Um, so, and that led in time to me taking the, um, the treatments that were then available, which was interferon. And I had two bouts of that, um, and, and neither of them, neither of them worked and they were both brutal. Um, Cause they are, they're, they're like one year treatments, aren't they? Like long, yeah, invasive. Yeah. And, they're they're uh, equivalent to sort of, I suppose, for those who wouldn't understand, it's sort of like a chemotherapy. It's a, that, it's, that's it's sort a of, well, that chemo. traditional way we see chemo, people being sick, Vomiting, losing weight, um, also yeah, very much so. Yeah. I mean, before I went on the first treatment, they they uh, they suggested strongly that I talk to a, a psychologist and who asked me about suicide and if I got depressed and things uh, because the, some of the side effects of of interferon were were terrible depression, um, uh, you know, m- massive uh, mental. Um, uh, pressures and, and discomforts, but as well as the physical, including hair loss and uh, you know just weak weak limbs, exhaustion. Um, and you experienced all those, I including did. the depression. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, fatigue and weakness in itself is a, is a depressing state to be in. So, so to try it a second time, it was clear <laughs> that even though you were asymptomatic, that you were aware of what lay ahead if you didn't get on top of your diagnosis? Yeah, I thought it was important to get rid of it, you know, um, uh, because people were developing uh, 
liver complications, mainly people who had continued drinking or continued taking drugs and things, but they were dying at about around the age of 50, early 50s and things. My, my good mates from the 70s were, were all going. And uh, I, I, I mean, I was drug-free and alcohol-free and things, so I kind of was ahead of the game a wee bit, but I also knew that down the line, um, you know, it would catch up with me. So tell me how you found out about the treatment that you ended up using. The later one. Um, well, that that came. There was there was that was sort of in the air about 2015. We heard about these new um, protocols from overseas. Um, the the Havoni, the whatever you know, that whole school of of uh, different medications, um, and uh, and that just I didn't realise that I would be just you know, how uh, easily I could sign up for that um, until somebody from the liver clinic here said, oh, no, no, you're a, you're a candidate. You're kind of ahead of the queue, you know. And uh, so, so you didn't know because had, had your doctor not told you or...? It, it was still very new, I right. think, and I, I, think, I don't think it was coming through the through the uh, the main street like that. It was it was liver clinics and, and things who were, who were uh, you know, offering it mainly, I think. And at that point it was... Um because we know it was available overseas and it, um, well before it got here. So, but you, you, you had the treatment here and um, talk about the payment structure for that. We were talking about... Um, it was it was negligible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we did hear about the huge cost overseas and things, and and uh, and there were people here who were importing it from India, I think, or China, um, and uh, to, to get rid of it, you know, to much much cheaper things and providing it to people. There was a guy in Australia doing it, and, and quite a network, I think, and getting people well. Um, I, I didn't sign up for that. I, I was recovering from liver cancer at the time, so. So it wasn't a great priority, but when I did recover from liver cancer, the, the the specialist said to me, "Well, that's great. However, you still have hepatitis C, and that will kill you," um, which frightened the hell out of me. And so then I I did seek out this the new protocol. Was the liver cancer? It was. Was it caused by the hepatitis C? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a it's a common uh, path for the for the disease. I think it's um, it not. I don't know. It's not inevitable, but it's uh, it's it's pretty common. So when you took the new treatment, um, which is the current treatment that's out there, um, talk about that in relationship to the interferon. How? It was uh, some people experienced some some side effects. I only heard about that anecdotally. Uh, I, I experienced no side effects whatsoever. And at the time, um, uh, I was uh, I had become started to become symptomatic with Hep C, and, and one of those was a terrible. Uh, deep itch in my arms and my neck, which would dri drive me crazy. I'd be scratching, scratching, you know, up half the night, scratching, scratching, scar tissue all up my arms and things. Um, uh, and within a few weeks of the new the new treatment, that that went, and and I knew that I, that it was working, that I was getting well. So. What was it like for you then after, because clearly you've faced, you know, with writing the blog that you wrote, you've faced your own death and then you got what most people hope for, which is a miracle. And there must be people out there that that are not accessing this, you know, so I can see that you're passionate about getting that out there. What was it like for you going from 
what felt like no hope to hope and how do you want to communicate that to others? Um, that's, that's, that's a good question. Uh, uh, I don't, uh, you know, um, uh, I've had, even when I was a, a using, you know, addict and, and very self-destructive alcoholic in the 70s and so forth, there was always a spark in me that wanted to live and that knew and that thought that life, you know, there was more to life than, than how I was carrying on. Uh, and that spark re remained, and, that, and that's what got me clean and sober. Um, and then, uh, and then, then this disease came and, and, you know, I kind of dealt with, with the, with the, with the cancer in the same way. I, I, I passionately wanted to keep, stay alive. Um, and then, so, so the news when that went was wonderful news, but the, 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 the fact that there was still hepatitis C was, was a bit of a disappointment to say the least. Um, and, but then the possibility of this other, this other treatment, which was 95% effective, um, uh, even for this, for the particular strain that I had of Hep C, which was the one that had been so uh, difficult to, to, to treat with uh, with uh, interferon, with one A, um, that was the one that was top of the list in terms of being resp responsive to this new thing. So I was just delighted, and I thought, you know, I th thought, really, here is my opportunity for a, a long and healthy life. I've seen so many friends of mine with hep C completely eradicate the disease with the treatment Digby's talking about. It's a game changer. If you have hep C and want to do something about it, accessing these new treatments is as simple as going to the doctor. That's one of the big reasons we made this podcast, because stigma should never stop you accessing medical help. And the new hep C treatments are saving lives. The new hepatitis C treatments are Halvoni, Sovaldi, Daklinza and Ibevere. Wow, they sound like British holiday resorts. These new treatments, they're also on the PBS, so they now are financially accessible. Sadly, stigma is still stopping people accessing the new Hep C treatment. That may be, um, that, that's certainly um, a, a, a factor. And I, and I would have thought that they might be afraid that, that, the, that the medical people will say, you have to stop using which is the last thing that, that they want to do. And that's so they they will prefer to take their chances, I think. Then there's another whole uh, cohort of people who, like me in my age group and, you know, between, say, 50 and 70 or something, possibly older, who who don't know that they've got it or they, they suspect they might have it. They haven't used drugs for years. Um, they... They're the ones who, are, who who it's important to reach, I think, because they they live with a degree of discomfort, but they've almost forgotten about the the, the days in which they used. Um, they've they've almost they they they've almost forgotten that they might have Hep C. But um, uh, I, I've worked with Hepatitis Australia and so forth to try to reach those people and say, if there's any possibility that you've that you've got it, that you've contracted it, you know, even if you had one taste in 1975, there's a possibility, please get checked up, you know. Um, that, that, their reluctance, I, it's just more complacency or they're not, they're not putting two and two together. Tell me about being an injecting drug user in 1975, particularly around, because I know working with the NSP, which is the Needle and Syringe Program, that they're 
health approach um, on bloodborne diseases is around the supply of, of clean equipment. So tell me, what was it like being an injecting drug user in the mid-70s when you didn't have access? Did you, did you have an awareness of some of the impacts that might be from sharing syringes? Did you have a, a um, you know, kind of a, a, a ritual that you went through or, or a regime of, of cleaning? Not really. <laughs> it, it, it was, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't uh, a clean needle, a needle swap um, uh, at that, that time, uh, it was, it was, you know, there was the stigma, uh, there was a, it was a heavy police, uh, you know, pr- uh, pressure on, on druggies. Um, it was very kind of, uh, uh, you know, covert, um, uh, criminal, um, and, uh, and tended to happen wherever you could do it, including public toilets. So, uh, so hygiene and those kind of things weren't, weren't really, uh, I mean, we sort of knew, um, but there was a rec- you know, we were 19 or something, we were reckless and we and just... And sharing needles, I imagine, was yeah, quite common too. Fairly common. I mean, there, was the, there, was, there were attempts at cleaning, um, uh, but you know, uh, to to be in a in a flat where somebody was actually boiling the syringe or treating it in some proper way like that would hit once in a blue moon. Well, I guess you'd have to be living with people that were aware of your drug use, and if you weren't boiling a syringe next to yes. someone's boiling egg for breakfast, may, that's right. May be hard to explain that's right, when yeah, you're trying yeah. to hide what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, what was it like too at that time? How did you actually access equipment? Like, I'm interested. Did you just got, could you buy it from the chemist? Did you have to come up with a story? There was stuff that was bought at chemists, but there was also quite a lot of uh, uh, burglaries going on, which I which I have to say I wasn't involved with. Um, but uh, drugs were stolen from chemist shops. Um, it, it was a common. Uh, 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 there was a lot of heroin around in the seventies, but there were also a lot of drug. Uh, there were also a lot of uh, chemist busts. So, so outfits, as they were called then, would um, would come come to you. You'd get a glass syringe, uh, which would, was an absolute pr- a prize. You know, there were things like the Blue Lady that the, oh, that the band the sings lady. about. You know, yeah. got myself a Blue Lady. You know. Um, uh, so if you had a glass syringe and you'd get a, a, a little box of maybe 12 needles, um, then you were, you were set. So that, that would keep you going for a while? A while, yeah. But it involved things like sharpening. You know, the, the needle would become jagged and so people would, would uh, sand that off on the side of a matchbox That's so, so that they didn't kind of hook themselves when they pulled the needle. There's all these like little... Um, there'd be those who were good at sanding and those who were good at boiling, and you knew who to go. Yes, you wanted yeah. your needle sharpened. No, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and good people who people who were good at actually administering it. You know, giving you a taste, and uh, uh, you know, they were valued. Those people. So, just historically for you, um, if we just get a bit of a, a an image of, of of you back then, what what took you into what what led you into sort of using. You know, 
Um, well, that's that's something that uh, you know that's a lifetime's kind of um, uh, in, uh, investigation to see what it, what is it what is at the heart of that. But have you got some insights? Uh, oh, ab- absolutely. But uh, have you you know have you got all day? You know, I could talk <laughs> about myself endlessly. But look, it's you know um, uh, you know uh, like a lot of us, we were we were in a, a conservative society which didn't really fit us and it didn't really understand us. Um, you know. Fairly conservative parents, we were we were lost in, in many ways. People who who there are people now who use and they say it's a lifestyle choice and and that and that's fine. Um, for me, it was more of a more of a well, it was a statement of you know of rebellion of of defiance of it just seemed to be ridiculously sort of cool or um, you know. Uh, it, but fundamentally, it's it's a lost kid looking for looking for some kind of identity, and thinking they had found it in in that, and and forming an identity and a persona around that. So, how old were you when you? How old were you around this time? Uh, the first time I used that was well, used intravenously was about nineteen. And were you, were you scared at the time? Did you have because you know, I, you know, there's been a real kind of part of the stigma. It, is so deeply imbued with this fear campaign, which is around, you know, you don't, you know, this could happen to you. If you have one hit, you could end up living on this, you know, that sort of yeah. otherizing. Yeah. Um, did, did you have fear around overdose or that you were going to go down the dark path of a, of a, of an addict? Not really. No. Um, uh, it, that didn't, I didn't have any of that kind of fear at all. No. Um, it was. It's. It's all. It's. You know. It's part of the sort of death-defying approach to the thing. The, the recklessness of it was. Uh, when I look back now, I'm astonished. Um, and I. And I. And for me and others, I, I see it as a sort of a form of self-harm. In fact, uh, or involving aspects of self-harm, as well as sort of self-protection and self. You know, um, delineation of who I am, but um, uh, uh, the 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 risk was was just was a kind of almost an added buzz to it, really. You know. But you managed to get clean. Do you want to tell me a little bit about how you managed to get how you managed to sort of stop you stop using, and how that impacted? Because you've managed, and how you manage your work life in that too? Because I imagine you were still trying to maintain um, the beginning of your career. Okay, did you just notice I said clean? When we talk about destigmatizing, it's about losing this language. Clean implies a person who uses drugs is dirty. I'd never thought of that, and I realize now how embedded this language is when it comes to talking about drug use. I should have just said stopped using drugs. I was working working in a newspaper actually um, in the in the day when they had reading rooms, so we were proofreaders and so forth. Um, uh, the uh, when I when I said before about not having any fear about that sort of thing, the fear came in because I because uh, I started to see people uh, they were dying, they were getting in terrible uh, uh, shape, um, uh, ending up in uh, psych wards and in jail. And I was a really fundamentally a nice middle class boy, um, and the idea of of prison uh, terrified me. And 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 then I came, I think, I'd, and I always had a sort of a, a middle class sort of 
kind of sort of disgust or something or a you know an, an, a, a, a judgment that this was this was not this wasn't what I should be doing um, and uh, and so I eased away from intravenous drug use and I eased my way into poly drug abuse of every other kind uh, and including alcohol so um, really developed even more uh, serious addictions following that but 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 after two or three years, I suppose, of intravenous drug use, it, it frightened me and I, and I um, moved away. And then I picked it up again a wee bit later towards the end of the 70s for, for sort of bouts. So I, don't, I can't pin down when I got hep C because it was pretty messy at the end of the 70s too. I was very messy. I love that... Um Intravenous drug use was your gateway drug to alcohol. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Well, there's quite they're quite just yeah. they're, they're quite. Um, I mean, there are, I know people now who only did that and took other drugs and wouldn't would never describe themselves as an alcoholic. Um, uh, I, I I had alcoholism right from you know very early teens. Uh, it, it, it manifested, and it's itself. quite a lethal combination together. You don't want to be mixing. Um, alcohol with intravenous drug use, particularly no, with heroin. You certainly don't. And I did on and on several occasions just went spark out. So I was turning blue. Did you, did turning you ever blue. overdose? Yeah, yeah several did. times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and had the ambulance call and at one point sort of sat up on the ambulance, whatever, you know, their little bed there and said, I've been drinking since 12 o'clock. You know, I had some kind of, I had no recollection of any of this the next day, but all I had was bruises under my arm and all over where people picked me up and tried to walk me around and push me up against walls and things, you know. But, yeah, I came close. I I should be dead from those overdoses. It was very clear. Alcohol and heroin, just lethal. Just a note, using alcohol and heroin together is extremely dangerous. It can often lead to overdose and, in some cases, death. So what what do you think about... um, because as you said, you moved, started to move away from injecting through to all that, you know, poly mix of everything yeah. and alcohol. Um, I love it how you say, in a sense, so you wouldn't have to go to jail. So yes. that sense of the the criminalisation of the needle, even though possibly some of those things you were taking orally were, even that was probably living in the illegal realm too. Um, what do you feel about um, the re- how we really stigmatise the needle, but somehow everything else is kind of okay. Yeah. Um, and I know you've sort of, as you say, you've traversed all those camps there. Um, but in society we really kind of really go hard on anyone who chooses to use a needle. Yes, yeah. Um, look, you know, it's, I, I, I think I can understand why why the, the judgment is there, uh, but I also think it, sh- it shouldn't be, you know. Uh, there, there, there seems to be something about, you know, there's something almost, you know, archetypally uh, about about putting and putting a needle into you and the blood and and the whole process and things like that that I can understand why people are frightened of that and, and find it repellent um, uh, but but I but I think that as a society as a culture we really do need to get over that and just see that as just something you know something that's on the continuum and, and probably not too distant from the Prime Minister lifting a glass of beer every time he sort of attends an event. As a comedian, I've performed at NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous conferences. And as a comic, the thought of a dry gig is it's a bit off-putting, but 
It's amazing how dark you can go at an NA conference. If 10 was the darkest moment of someone's life, most people struggle to navigate a four. At these gigs, I loved it. I could turn it up to 11 because these people were up for anything. Well, most people have stared death in the face yeah. if, and if they're not actually like me and others. You know, most of most people who are, were committed to, the, to it yeah. um, uh, came this close to dying. Um, uh, yeah. And even and if they didn't, there would, as you say, in the back of your mind, there is always that thing of maybe the next shot, maybe that's something yeah. could go wrong. Even if it never did, you kind of, you inherently knew the risk all the time. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. Where suddenly... Someone ODs, and the next one it could be you for whatever reason. Yeah. Whatever reason, that's it right. Go down that's road. right. That's right. And and uh, right from a very young young age, people all around us were dying. They, there were suicides. There were accidents, fights, occasional murder. You know. Um, yeah, and it was those and overdoses. Oh, and you're also dealing with shame and self-loathing. How did you deal with with shame? Is that something? I still am. Okay, I thought you might have. But not about that. Right, right. (laughs) Just about everything else. That's great. The great thing about life, it gives us many. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. To have regret. Shame is just underwrites so much of who we are that sometimes we don't think it's shame, and when you drill down, you go, "Oh, not more shame." Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Um, well, I would suggest that for people who, de- who develop serious addictions that shame is almost the, the fundamental um, driver uh, and fear of shame. Uh, they, they want to avoid that. The, the, Just um, explain that a bit more because shame and then there's the fear of shame. Because I think it's, it's spoken about a bit but it might need a little bit of well, I suppose, clarity. Well, uh, I suppose shame, shame is such a... a, a a terrible, uh, you know, painful um, kind of feeling to have and, and, and all-powerful. Um, and uh, the, to, 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 to avoid that, we'll, we'll avoid that at all costs, I think, to, to, to feel that. Um, uh, and that might involve, might involve using or hiding in any other kind of way. You know, we hide who we are because we might be outed and ridiculed or, you know, um, humiliated or, you know, I think that's, that's at, the, at, the, at the heart of it. And it's okay for us to feel it in ourselves because we can keep it. That's our little secret, you know, that we feel, you know, this is how we feel. For somebody else to expose it or for it to be exposed is a, is a terrifying prospect because, you know, then you're really walking down the main street in your underpants and everybody's laughing at you, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, we, we have nightmares about that. And what Digby just explained is what stigma does to people. It shames them and is the driving force of why we are telling these stories. Yeah, it puts, and it puts you at risk, doesn't it? It makes you, um, I guess that's the role as, as well, isn't it, of trauma and all of these unaddressed, you know, deep issues. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, I mean, the whole field of trauma now and Gable Mata and people like that, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at where, where and, and having it attached to the limbic system, you know. The, the, the research in this is just extraordinary and, and, and incredibly exciting, I think, um, to, to to deal with, with, with trauma, you know, people are traumatised. Yeah, and looking at, I think it's quite amazing because I think for a long time people thought they were broken or there was something wrong with them and then they suddenly said, do you know what happened to you as a child? That changed your brain and it changed the yes. way. And even though it doesn't make it better, 
it, it gives someone a sense that it, it, it wasn't them. Yeah. Inherent. It's a, yeah, and that, that's still a big process, obviously, socially. For- yeah, yes, yeah. But it's fantastic. Uh, I you know I have a member of my family who's just done the, the Gable Marte thing and, and she says that the, the liberation of that, of, of, of looking at trauma and, and just say, as you say, you know, the kind of, oh, yes, there's nothing wrong with me, you know, I was, yeah. I was harmed, I was damaged, mm. you know, uh, and, uh, and, and the rest of my life since that has been a process of trying to, you know, either hide or protect myself from from feeling that damage or acting out on that damage, and um, um, it's it's it just it just it's a completely new perspective. Well, it's like the the person who hears about their own trauma, they're they're, they're freed up and they they can have compassion for themselves and 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 you know. Be, be go gently, and yeah. I think other if other people can see it from that perspective, then they'll have compassion. What sort of media and campaign do you think would work? Would you like to try anyway? I don't know if it would work. <laughs> you would like to try. How would you like to sort of change change the conversation around this? What, what sort of what sort of media would work? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I think uh, I think something like this is is a great start telling stories and 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 the the uh, hepatitis australia for instance are doing it they they're having people you know tell us your story you know what happened and you know what it's like now and so forth um i think i think that's the thing to actually put a human face on it um i think the the greens are doing pretty good work in terms of uh you know uh decriminalizing um, drug drug use, but the political will here just at the moment is, you know, is so rigid and almost religiously conservative, you know. You know they won't even tolerate uh, pill testing to save kids' lives. Um, so up against that, you know, uh, unless there's some change there, we, we're, it's, it's hopeless. Um, and, and getting the current mainstream media on side is a huge task, I think, because as you see, there's the the Sun Herald article which talks about junkies and so forth. Um, um, so telling the story, telling, you know, this is important. Thank you so much, Digby. Thank yeah, you. Thanks so much, Digby. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. We can't talk about stigma and its health impacts on people who inject drugs without looking at how drug law reform or the lack of it impacts on people's lives. Stigma is absolutely linked to the prohibition of drugs and the politics of the legal system and their approaches. While we punish addicts through the legal system for a health issue, we will continue to have stigma around drug use in the community. We speak with Dr Alex Wodak AM, a physician and formerly the director of the Drug and Alcohol Service at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. He was one of the physicians behind this safe injecting rooms and helped establish the first NSP in Australia. Very little support for punitive approaches to drug use. Um, Having said that, it gets a little bit more complicated because what politicians are interested in is not only whether there's support or an opposition, but how strong the support is and how, how strong the opposition is because they want to know whether it's a vote changing intervention. I assume that what the politicians work on is that uh, very few people will change their vote for a politician who supports reform um, 
but they may vote against a politician, uh, reject a politician who supports reform. Well, it's very clear that more reform will change the attitude and the treatment of people who use drugs in a major way, and it's the single most important way we can reduce stigma and discrimination. Portugal is a model of drug law reform that has become a benchmark for progressive change. It happened in a very, very Catholic country. We asked Alex how we could use that approach here. I think that would be to remove, as in Portugal on July the 1st, 2001, remove all criminal sanctions from the possession of personal quantities of all drugs without exception. That would be the single reform. Uh, now, when that happened in Portugal in 2001, there was another reform that Portugal did, which is fewer people know about, and that was the expansion and improved funding of drug treatment. And that's also very important. That doesn't need law reform, but the two things have to go hand in hand. So that's the reform. We know that in Portugal that made a world of difference to outcomes, um, including reduction in deaths, reduction in HIV, reduction in crime, reduction in problematic drug use amongst prisoners. So what was the motivation for a primarily Catholic country like Portugal to adopt quite a radical drug law reform? Portugal, uh, it was the deaths of, from drug overdose uh, and drug-related uh, conditions uh, amongst um, the children of major politicians in Portugal. And that was that was the significant event. Uh, Portugal's the poorest country in Western Europe. Um, drug use had been at very high levels. HIV was going through the roof, and um, uh, particularly among people who inject drugs uh, and from them to the general population. And there were a very high rate of drug overdose deaths, which fell soon after the 2001 reform. Over three decades ago, we led the way in harm reduction here in Australia. It was the lived experience of those in power that was the impetus to drive significant drug reform. For the first time, our politicians were united in turning their attention to how they could provide better outcomes for people who use drugs. Australia, you might remember that the daughter of the then Prime Minister, um, Rosalind Hawke, daughter of Bob Hawke, uh, was found under um, in found in a terrible state underneath uh, uh, the school building in Nimbin. And uh, then the Australian people learned that um, she had a significant drug problem, and then and uh, Bob Hawke cried in Parliament when he was asked a question about drugs by Andrew Peacock in Question Time, and then Hazel Hawke um, gave an interview a few days later uh, explaining that their daughter had a drug problem, and that had a uh, dramatic effect. Uh, at the time, and that led uh, Bob Hawke to announce uh, that if the government was re-elected um, at the next elections, that there would be significant uh, interventions in 
the drugs area. The government was re-elected, and then the Prime Minister uh, convened a meeting of all premiers and the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. ACT didn't have self-government in Canberra on the 2nd of April, 1985, and they spent a day talking about drugs and drug policy and produced a whole raft of reforms. We're still benefiting from those reforms. And one of the reforms was to uh, adopt as Australia's official national drug policy the notion of harm minimisation. Um, and that was very, Australia was very advanced. Uh, another reform adopted on that day was the idea of including all psychoactive drugs under the one umbrella, policy umbrella. So legal and illegal drugs were all grouped together. That was incredibly advanced at that, at that time. Um, and those reforms were tremendously beneficial. And every government in Australia uh, has followed um, that, uh, that policy of harm minimisation, although at times some parties in opposition say they're not going to follow it next time they're in government. They always do. Digby mentioned Dr Gabor Mate. If you'd like to find out about human development through the lens of science and compassion, then you can go to the website Dr Gabor Mate. That's D-R-G-A-B-O-R-M-A-T-E dot com. Today you heard Digby's story. Join us next episode, our final story from Shay, a woman who injects drugs with no intention of stopping. She's a high-functioning community member, happy with her life. Needle and syringe programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website harmreductionaustralia.org.au. To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website, www.bluenotknot.org.au. 